Welcome to the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill, and while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 14. Before we begin, I I do want to kind of give a a trigger warning. Um, This story continues an arc we uh, have been talking about for a few episodes, and it does deal with issues of rape and sexual assault, uh, deals with uh, issues of violence and uh, family uh, dysfunction. And so, you know, I just want to give people the option, if this is an episode you need to skip, feel free to do so. You know, it's kind of become a, a, a meme in some corners. Uh, you know, we can't ever say, oh, you know, triggering. That's for millennial snowflakes. Yet it's, you know, it's funny. Um, I remember years ago, before I was married, um, the church I was uh, part of, um, they were going to show this video of a guy sharing his testimony of surviving uh, the Pentagon attack on 9-11 but he had horrible burns all over his body. He, he had survived, but it had, you know, great injury to himself. And um, he had really suffered uh, horrific burns. And um, there was a fellow in the church who a few years before had been horribly, horribly burned in a workplace accident uh, at the Boeing plant uh, outside of Seattle. And I knew for a fact that that Sunday morning before that video was shared in the days leading up to it, the pastor had reached out to this, this guy and said, hey, just so you know, uh, we're going to share this video and this guy is going to talk about the burns he received and the uh, scars he has and all of the pain and trauma uh, that came from the burns that happened when the Pentagon was attacked. And he said, I want you to know so you don't come in blind and I want you to know so that you don't, um, if, if you need to like maybe come a little late Sunday morning, or if you want to just, you know, whatever you need to do. And, and everybody gets that. And yet then when we use words like triggered or, or if it's something that we don't feel it's in the Bible, why should we warn anybody about it? Because these issues are deeply felt. One in three women in America have been sexually abused. Uh, one in six men, and everybody agrees that pays attention to these things, agrees that that number is underreported. Men are far less likely to report abuse. Uh, they're far more likely to write it off uh, or just for different reasons, not talk about it. So, so if you think about the people you know, you know people who have been abused, who have been raped, who have been the victims of violence. Maybe you yourself have. And so it's fair to say, hey, just so you know, this is a particularly hard issue for some people and we should care. In fact, what we'll talk about today, part of the issues going on in chapter 14 is the king, David, not caring enough about things he should care about. Now, uh, in, our, in our last episode, Absalom, the, the son of David, the king, had fled Jerusalem. And he had to flee because he had killed Amnon, his stepbrother, his half-brother. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart. He is a, uh, a, an example in many ways, but David was a deeply flawed human being. And one of the, the troubles in David's life was that even before he became king, he took multiple wives. Um, he, had, he had 
multiple wives. He had his first wife, Michael, who was the daughter of the previous king, Saul. And then when Saul tried to kill David out of jealousy and paranoia, he took Michael away from him. So then David's on the run and he took up with this other gal. And then he found this gal he really liked. So he took up with her while he's out in the wilderness. So he's two wives. And then he comes back and he reclaims Michael, his first wife, takes her away from uh, the husband that she seemed happy with that she had been given to after uh, David fled. And he kept taking wives. And not just wives, but he had girls on the side, concubines and mistresses. And so now he had all these children from these different women. And Amnon uh, became obsessed, just obsessed with his uh, half-sister, the sister of Absalom. And he, he concocted this whole plot to get her alone, and then he, he forced himself on her. And Absalom waited in the tall grass, and, and a, a while later, a couple years later, he arranged a situation where he killed Amnon, his half-brother, the, you know, the, another prince. And then uh, the word got back to David, but he got the word that Absalom had killed all of the king's sons. And if you don't know, uh, the reason you kill, one prince kills all the rest of the princes is like a power grab. You kill all of the other princes so that you can become the king. You're going to usurp your father. So the word gets back like Absalom's after your throne. And then it turns out that Absalom had only killed the one son, the one he had a, a, a grudge with. And so he flees and um, David mourns for the loss of his son. Um, but also he, it says in verse 39 of chapter 13 that David longed to go to Absalom for he was very, cons you know, he was consoled concerning Ammon's death. So he got past his time of grieving his one son, but he really loved his other son, and so he wanted to see him. Now, as a parent, you can understand that. As a parent, you will always love your children no matter what they do. As a parent, you can, you can resonate with that. At the same time, in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Joab, the son of Zuriah, he's high up in the king's uh, you know, power structure, uh, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. And he said to her, pretend you are in mourning, dressed in mourning clothes, and do not use any cosmetic lotions, and act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak to him uh, these words. And Joab put the words in her mouth. So I want you to say these things to him. So the woman from Tekoa went to the king, and she fell at her face to the ground to pay honor. And she said to him, help me, your majesty. And the king asked her, what's troubling you? And she said, I am a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons, and they got into a fight with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, uh, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of the brother whom he killed, and then we will get rid of the heir as well. So basically, they don't want to just kill her son, but her grandson in, in what they perceived as justice or vengeance. They would not only be uh, put out the burning coal that I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. So she's saying it's like one thing that they want to like kill my son, but they want to kill his son. And that would take away like all of the inheritance that my family has. And that's a really big deal in their culture to have a uh, future and, and future generations is a massively big deal in their culture. And so the king said to the woman, go home and I will issue an order on your behalf. Uh, 
But the woman from Tekoa said to him, Let my lord the king pardon me and my family, and let the king and his throne be without guilt. And the king replied, If anyone says anything to you, bring them to me, and they will not bother you again. And she said, Then let the king invoke the name of the Lord his God to prevent the anger, uh, the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. Well, surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one of hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, why have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, he does not convict himself for the king has not brought back his banished son. Or sorry, when the king says this, does he not convict himself for the king has not brought back his banished son? Like water spilled to the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises a way that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Interesting. So what she's saying is true. The king is willing to do something for her that he won't do for his own son. That's true. She's also saying, you invoked the name of God. And even then, in the old covenant system, they had this understanding that God would make a way of redemption. God would make a way of forgiveness. God would make a way to restore relationships if a person wanted to come back. Verse 15, and now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought I will speak to the king and perhaps he will grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. And now your servant says, may the word of the Lord, uh, my Lord, the king secure my inheritance for my Lord, the king is like an angel of God and discerning good and evil. May the Lord, your God be with you. And the king said to the woman, Don't keep from me the answer to what I am going to ask you. Let my lord the king speak, she said. And the king asked, isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered, as surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or the left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and put all these words in my mouth. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. My Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. And the king said to Joab, very well, I will do it. Go and bring back the young man, Absalom. Now you got to fill in the, the blanks here. Joab got this woman to come. Uh, she was a woman of renown. She's very persuasive. And so she comes and plays her part. But it's not unlikely that Joab hadn't already been like preparing the ground and maybe been talking to the king about this. And the king's a smart guy and he figures out, hey, Joab's been talking to me about this. Uh, And this woman comes just conveniently with this, um, you know, message that I should restore my son's place in the family and forgive him. And you can just see him looking over at Joab like, really? So he says to the woman, hey, Uh, Joab's behind this, right? You're not going to lie to me. And she's like, yep, you're right. And she's a smart woman, right? She's playing both sides. She came, Joab probably paid her to do this. Like she's not doing this for free. She's getting something from Joab. But then she's, she's not dumb either. Like the king's the most powerful person in the land. Uh, She's not going to lie to him. And so she comes out, she gets the payment for Joab. Joab gets what he wants. Everything's good. In fact, if Joab's like, why did you wrap me out? She could go back to him and say, hey, didn't the king do exactly what you wanted? Like this was the way to do it. And he goes, well, you're right. So she comes out ahead in all this. 
Verse 22, Joab fell to his face to the ground to pay honor to the king, and he blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favor in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was not a blemish on him. And whenever he cut his, the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and the weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. And Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. And then Absalom sent for Job in order to send him to the king. But Job refused to come to him. And he sent a second time, but he refused to come. And then he said to his servants, look, Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house and he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom said to Joab, look, I sent word to you and said, come here so I can send you to to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? Would it have been better for me to be there still? Now then, I want to see the king's face, and if I am guilty of anything, let it put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this, and the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. All right. So what's going on here is that Joab knows that the king wants his son back, and he works out this kind of elaborate system to, you know, this plot to convince the king to bring Absalom back. And Absalom looks like the right guy to take over for David when he's gone. He, he, you know, everybody understands why he killed his brother. You know, you, the people can get behind that story. Oh, you know, you avenged your sister. Everyone can understand that. And he's, he's a handsome guy. This whole thing about his hair, it just kind of talks about like, he's a healthy guy. He has beautiful children. He has all of these things that you, you think, oh, this is what a leader should look like. But for two years, he hasn't seen the king. And if you're not close to the king, you're not close to power. And you're obviously not going to be the guy to take over the kingdom if the king refuses to see you. And what does he do when Joab won't come and be part of his plots? He sets Joab's field on fire. He's still a man of rage. I'm not going to fault somebody for avenging their sister. I can understand that. But you can see that he's not, he's not somebody... Who, who has an even keel, not somebody who you want, uh, you know, ruling with calm and, and, you know, control. There is an issue and there is a question within the American, especially the American Protestant church about restoration and forgiveness. Somebody does something they shouldn't have done. Somebody does something that kind of removes them from relationship, removes them from community, takes them away from from the situation that they were in. Do we forever leave them banished or do we restore them? What Absalom's saying makes a certain amount of sense. He says, hey, I was out in Geshur and I was living there and I was okay. And then you bring me back to Jerusalem and for two years, I can't do anything. I just stay at, I stay at home. I'm essentially under house arrest. I can't go see my dad. I'm, I'm held out. Everybody knows that I'm being banished from the Royal court. 
I might as well have just stayed in Gesher because at least there I was away from like all the, the, you know, the, the looks and the comments. Why is it that I'm here and you won't bring me back in? What do you do with such a person? And the woman from Tekoa was absolutely right. When we go astray, God is always looking to bring people back into relationship with himself and with his people. And I believe in restoring people and finding ways back to to heal relationships, to mend things that are broken. But there has to be repentance shown. Um, Put it this way. There was... uh, There was a pastor, we'll call him that, a very, very famous preacher, well-known in American church circles. And this church leader, this famous preacher, was fired from his church because he had been incredibly abusive, not physically, but emotionally and verbally. He was a bully. And it was found out that he had been just terrible to people on staff. Uh, he He had been you know, um, just really terrible to to people that worked for him, people that worked with him. Um, He wasn't living a a life of kindness and love. And so they, they said, hey, you know, it's not okay. And he just refused to listen and refused to listen. And so then finally they, they said, you're, you're done. And he took his bags and, you know, look, it's a big mega, mega church. So he's got all kinds of money. So he packed up, took a couple years off, moved to San Diego. And then tried to get himself back on the scene, going to speak at churches and conferences. And everybody's like, we need to restore and and we need to be about forgiveness. But he had never repented. He had never admitted what he had done wrong. He had never, it was always like, I was, I was innocent. People lied about me. Everything was somebody else's fault. And then this church, uh, another mega church in, in, uh, in Arizona started to bring him on and, and, you know, preach once a month and involved in a bunch of things. And they said, hey, if you, if, you know, people started asking questions, what's going on? And they, they said, don't ask questions. You're just spreading gossip and rumors. And then just last week, he was arrested because he had a road rage incident where he, where he used his fists and, and, and had a woman that was involved in the car accident, sent her to the hospital with his fists. Absalom said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I feel real bad. But really nothing had changed for him. He wants restoration without repentance. I'm so thankful that God provides ways of restoration. God heals relationships. God allows us to come back, but he's also calling us to repent. He's calling us to, to change and, and to say what, acknowledge what we've done and acknowledge our need for God. And, and, and that's the, the first step in becoming a Christian is to say, I have been walking in ways that were not right, that were rebellious, that were wicked, that were evil. I walked in ways that I thought were good, but they were not right in the sight of God. But even as Christians, when we have repented and we place our faith in Jesus, there are times where because of sin, relationship is broken and we need to humble ourselves and repent. But Absalom refused to humble himself. Absalom built himself up. Look, I avenged my sister and I have this beautiful family and I'm successful and I'm, I'm obviously the guy and he continues to build himself up. Should David have brought Absalom back? Maybe. Maybe. 
it's weird that this whole thing kind of went down through manipulation. But when Absalom was brought back, David was passive. David said, I want my son back. But he never went and did the work of David calling Absalom to repent. And when Absalom does enter his presence, it's like, okay, we're just going to pretend that never happened, but we're not going to deal with the underlying trauma. Forgiveness, grace, and mercy do not mean that we don't deal with the underlying issues, the underlying trauma, that we just pretend like something never happened. I believe God wants to bring people back, restore people, bring us back into relationship and fellowship with God and with each other. But if we pretend like the broken things aren't broken, then what we're saying is, God, I don't want to give you the chance to do your healing work. I want to thank you again for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study. You can follow us on social media at Faith on Hill. We meet Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. for church, small groups throughout the week. And our podcasts are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You just have to search Faith on Hill. We'll see you again for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study.